0: Idea. all right make up I think we need to evolve the podcast all right what well, you got in mind well why don't we just start recording all the chats we have
1: when we're talking about leadership okay what are we gonna call it sense makers sense makers love it and have we got a backer of course we
0: have tsunami sport
1: quality when are we starting now get this end round I'll put kettle on top man I'll be around in five
0: Sean Anthony Sherwood is a qualified life coach and experienced pastoral leader currently working at Royton and Crompton School in the Greater Manchester area of the UK. Sean is also a motivational speaker and has recently set up his own brand, Sean Anthony Health and Wellness. Sean recently came to our attention as a participant in the Channel 4 TV show, SAS Who Dares Wins. We loved his get up and go attitude and believe he has a great story to share. This episode will focus on the concept of perseverance, and Sean will certainly give us some great examples of how he has displayed that quality during his life. Welcome to the show, Sean, and can you tell our listeners a bit about your experiences on SAS Who Dares Wins?
2: Yeah, hello everyone. Uh, first of all, thank, thanks to the boys for, uh, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a real honor, uh, pleasure. I've been following the podcast, uh, especially in the last six months, and it's something um, felt passionate about and wanted to definitely come on and share my story. And hopefully, you know, your, your listeners will trigger, trigger, you know, trigger something that will, that will help them and relate to my story in a way. So SS Who Dares Wins um, was a show that I followed for a long time. Uh, in terms of the DS, Ant Middleton and Jason Fox, I've, I've read their books and I've kind of followed them guys. But when you talk about something that pushes you to your ultimate limit, um, how to break the body and mind in, in, in one kind of hit it, 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 I don't think it gets any further than that the special Forces is something um, that only <clears throat> people in the army can dream of and still they don't get in it's the elite thinking soldier um, and there was something about the elite thinking soldier that that really grabbed my attention and made me want to apply now these boys are, you know the people you send for bin Laden you high-end terrorists you know they're not they're not they're not your average you know your average army Army I'm a veteran, the people who, who, you know, have been there, done it and dropped on enemy lines. And it's something that I felt if I could get, you know, myself around these guys, I would only improve myself, my personal development as a person. So, you know, the, the application process was, was brutal. Um, it, it, it consisted of, you know, five different stages. The first stage was just filling in the application form and recording a five minute video. Of yourself, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever recorded a five-minute video of himself, but it's very difficult <laughs> to talk about yourself for five minutes. Um, then from that, you know, a number of, of, of producers that work within Channel Four and Minnow Films, who who film and broadcast SS Who Dares Wins, um, contact you if, if they feel you know your story fits TV. At this point, it's all about TV and Channel Four. It's got nothing to do with SS Who Dares Wins. Um, it's just about you know your application at that point. I was fortunate enough to get a phone call um, to get to stage two, which was then uh, a fitness test requirement. Now we was in COVID. So what would usually happen was you would go down to London um, to channel four and then they would physically put you through with some of their PTs, their personal trainers, uh, the fitness test, the requirements to, um, to get to stage three. Now the fitness test consisted of um, a 1.5 mile run in nine minutes flat. Okay, so if anyone's into the fitness, or so I'll, 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 to give you a bit of scope of that, that's a, approximately a six-minute mile, and it's it's uh, it's just near enough quicker than a than, than a three-quarter pace run. So it was practically a sprint for one point five five miles to try and get get in the nine-minute time frame. Uh, then you had to carry two twenty-four kg dumbbells for over two hundred meters uh, within a two-minute time frame, and if you finished in the two-minute time frame, you had to hold them until you finished. So again something that, that i found difficult um uh, and then you just had to tread some water uh, for five minutes it was kind of a swim test to prove you know you could cope in water so these were the tests that i had to do the water and the dumbbells problem at all that was easier um the run took me 22 attempts <laughs> 22 attempts now the day before they wanted the, the deadline so it was deadline for each stage, basically. And the day before the deadline, I said to my missus, I said, I, can't, I don't think I can do this. You know, my timing was coming up at 9.40, 9.36, 9.12. I was always 10 to 20 seconds out of the time requirement. So on attempt 24, I said, listen, I said, I'm going to uh, give it one more go. Um, and she said, why don't you change the route? Because in my head, I'd mapped the same route. You know, it was 1.5 mile. It was a little bit uphill, a little bit downhill. And she went, does it say anything about the route you know, and the elevation? And I said, it doesn't actually specify. She went, well, why don't you just change the route? So we changed the route on the last attempt, and it went slightly downhill at the end. Well, that picked up my pace, and I ended <laughs> up doing it in eight, eight minutes eight minutes and 41, 41 seconds. So, you know, the missus the come good for me there because I don't think uh, <laughs> I'd have thought of that myself. So I changed the route. I got it in, I got it in eight minutes, 41 seconds. I sent it over to, to Channel 4. Um, and they sent it back saying you need to record yourself doing it. I said, "I've got to do it again." He said, "You've got to do it again." I couldn't believe it. i didn't give anything on that last one. I didn't think I'd have to do it again. So because um, they wanted more proof and more validation, I had to um, press Strava on my uh, my free train, which I run up, which I run with, which I train with. But then with my work mobile, my other phone, I had to run with that, holding record. So Strava was recording, and then I had this phone in my hand, running as fast as I could to try and um, to try and prove that I did it. So I pressed start before the run started, and then I stopped it at the end. Anyway, it turns out I did it in the sack at the same time, eight minutes and <laughs> um, forty-one seconds. So twenty-four attempts later, mate, it got sent off, and then I got passed on to stage to stage three. So stage three, they whittle it down to about twelve thousand people. Um. It started off about 100,000 people. They they said this series was the most, in terms of applications, they ever had for all the five previous series. So, you know, there's a lot of people that have applied that apply for Series 6. So then I get through to the next stage, and that was a a Skype, similar interview to what we're doing. Now it was a Skype interview with one of the the top producers at Channel 4, a gentleman called um, John Khan, who was quite high up uh, in Channel 4. Uh, and that was about an hour and a half. And that was intense. Went through my life story, went through, you know, uh, why I wanted to do it in the first place, you know, uh, what my previous experiences was, whether I had any, any issues with authority. And he was really digging deep into my character um, to make sure that, A, I was making the right decision and, B, he was highlighting some issues that, you know, when you put yourself on TV, it's out there for the world to see and you've got to be open to criticism. Now this is something I didn't think about Um, this is something I didn't take into consideration. It was the, crit- the criticism, but he said, you're going to get people on social media, you're going to get trolls, you're going to get... And in a way, I'm thinking, putting me off now? You know, I've come through these two stages and and it felt like he was trying to put me off. But my mindset was so um, focused on, you know, when you get through each stage, you just want to get there. You just want to get to the end. And uh, I, I could tell by the way he was talking, I had a very good chance of getting to stage four. So we went through that intense Skype interview and then uh, that was it i didn't hear anything for 2 weeks now obviously because i work in a school i had to try and keep schooling informed. but um, channel 4 was adamant they didn't, didn't want anyone talking about it so you have to sign a non nda a non disclosure agreement to say you know you're not you're not you're not going to tell anyone if you get onto the, into the show so there's only my head teacher uh, and my union rep that knew about it so fast forward two weeks' time, um, I've got another phone call saying, right, they've whittled it down. Uh, I've, now, I'm now, I've now made the final 50. So this is stage four. So all it would be now is, is a conversation with um, another producer at Channel 4, but this is the man who makes all the decisions. This is the, you know, this is not no assistant. This is, this is the main man. He's speaking to the, to, the, to the final recruits that have been selected. Um, and it's just going over the story again just to make sure, you know, there's no gaps, you've not made anything up, to make sure you're genuine. Um, And that was it. And that conversation was actually really laid back. Um, I spoke to a a psychologist who just went through some of the aspects of being on TV. Uh, And then it came from there. We just, we kind of concluded the call with, right, you know, we've got everything we need. It's kind of a yes or a no now. Um, But you can go back to work and say, these are the dates you will need off. So, Again, it wasn't a yeah, but they would tell him to go to work and tell him the dates that I would need to be off. So I was very confident that I'd made that final that final cut. So that next thing is, I get I gets the call off Channel 4 um, approximately 14 days before SAS the win starts. That's how close it was. Um, and that's how much they wanted to keep it out of the media. Don't forget, we're still in COVID. We're in, lock, we're in, a, we're in a national lockdown. So all this is done over over Skype and, and I'm working from home. So I'll get to the call. Um, I, I want to produce a Channel 4 to say, you know, congratulations, you know, you've been successful. Um, out of 100,000 applicants, you've made the final 22, you know, which is an achievement in itself. So now it's time to really start to, to, to get your head around the fact you're going on on this on this course. It's not, not a show in my eyes. It was a course. And, you know, you need to prepare yourself for that. So we're going to send you some boots. You need to wear the boots in because these are the boots you're going to be wearing while when the course starts. Um, and we'll send you details of your chaperone and your flight. Uh, so that's what happened. I got I got the details through. It was all done very secret to it, all very FBI-ish and, and James Bond-ish, 007. You know, you got a text the day before the flight. Even when I got to the airport, there was... Um, there was a chaperone there. She was kind of had her eyes on me, but I never met her. It was all through text. Go to this terminal. Go and wait at Costa. There's a br- There's a brew for you. Like, so I'm just looking at my phone, and you know, um, so it was all a bit surreal. I didn't know where where the destination was going. There was a hint it was going to be filmed in Hawaii. Okay, this is this is where <laughs> this this is where apparently the series six is going to be filmed. Obviously COVID's changed all that and I seen my flight details and it was Inverness, Inverness Airport. <laughs> so, you know, this is a, this is a big, big big change from Hawaii. So I got my uh, my flight details, I got my information. I was on a very small aircraft. I don't know if you ever flew to Scotland, but it's a very, you know, there's only 20 people on this plane. Uh, one seat, one seat per person, and and I flew over to Inverness. I was then taken to a hotel in Inverness, just a normal premier in. Uh, I got given my room details and then awaited further instruction. In the morning, I was taken then down to the pool, which I had to then do another swim test to prove I could swim, uh, which I can't swim. So this is something I have to teach myself, knowing I'd applied. It was 20 lengths. Yeah, 20 lengths without stopping. Um, And then tread tread water after you've done your 20 lengths for five minutes. So whilst I'm doing the swim test, there's other people next to me doing the swim test. test. So now I'm thinking, right, these guys are these guys are obviously on the course, you know. You're weighing up how they look, are they chiselled, are they bodybuilders, are they CrossFit trained? You know, all these things are going through my mind. So you start to you start to look at yourself and think, right, am, am, I, am I actually fit enough? You know, because there was a couple of people there. Uh, Ricky, for example, he was the firefighter who um, ran into Grenfell Tower and and and, and was part of that um, part of that disaster at that time. And he was uh, he was there. He was doing his swim test and he was just flying from from side to side, from length to length. You know, so then all of a sudden you think, right, these boys are fitter than me. You know, have I made the right choice? Self-doubt starts to creep in a little bit. But look, we're here now. Let's get on with it. That's my attitude. That's the way I've always been. I'm a natural leader and a winner. And, you know, I'm in the thick of it. There's no turning back. So anyway, passes the swim test. Um, and then the day after, we was taken up to the island of Razay, which is up in the Scottish Highlands. Now, we had to... cut. Co- um, We had to self-isolate for a week in our rooms. Now, a lot of people won't see this or know about this, but because we had to self-isolate for a week and because COVID was so drastic at that point, it was still affecting so many people, the camera crew and the production team said, look, if you get COVID in this week, you're on a a plane home, so you have to listen to what we tell you. Now, you're in your room for 20 hours a day and this was a really, really old hotel you know, with, um, with with with, it was like a bed and breakfast and your room was very small. I would, I would say box room level with a tiny shower. Now you was allowed out for one hour a day of exercise, but you had to wear your mask at all times. Again, this is very difficult for people who struggled in lockdown, uh, which, was, was, which is myself, which is one of the reasons I applied for SAS. Um, I'm now in this, in this four before room, you know, for 20 hours a day you know there's only so much Netflix you can watch there's only so much you know and you couldn't speak about where you was you could only speak to family so friends had been cut off uh, work colleagues had been cut off you know because they were asking what was going on because I just all of a sudden went off from work and couldn't say why um so it was very difficult I found that bit one of the most one of the most challenging um I wasn't saying I, was, I would I was I was locked up but I definitely felt you know I was locked up I was I was, I was on my own for twenty hours a day, and your room and your food, everything was brought to you, so you didn't really interact with anyone else. So that was its own battle in itself. So the day before the course started, day one, we was kind of giving a heads up: look, be up for four o'clock. You'll get your last COVID t- what? You'll get your last COVID test, and then that's it. You know, it, the course has started. You'll know when the course has started. So we got, we got, um, we got suited up. We got our, we got our, we got our clothing given to us, and then. We got taken to a remote island of uh, a remote area of Inverness where we were placed onto a train and then, boom, all the cameras came out.
1: Wow. And we've not even got into what actually happened on there. And I'm already thinking, <laughs> yeah. out, you know, you've got, you've worked so hard 24 attempts to. To get your time for a run, you've taught yourself to swim. You've had a week's isolation and no contact from your pals, and you've disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, <laughs> you know we, we we know from from Scott Geller's research at Virginia Tech. He talks a lot about self motivation and why people do things. And I'm really interested in asking you the three questions that he talks about when it comes to self motivation and empowerment. We haven't even got to how you persevered through them. But first of all, the first question he he talks about is, can you do it? Could it work is the second one. And the third, is it worth it? Now, I'm sure that at some stage throughout this process that's been weeks long through a pandemic where you've taught yourself a new skill, you've you've run yourself ragged and you've cut yourself off from family and friends,
2: the answer to that first question: Can you do it? You've got to be thinking yes. It was always it was always a yes, uh, Lewis, But it was more so when you when I didn't know I was guaranteed. So I need to go back to answer this question. So when I applied, no, there was no guarantee after stage two. There was no guarantee after stage three. There was no guarantee. But this is in a matter of months. So I knew that I had to sacrifice a lot, you know, and, I, and I'm not a heavy drinker. I don't smoke, but I like to enjoy myself on the weekend. And I like to eat my own foods. And I like, you know, I like to enjoy myself as, as much as the next one, but I knew playing um, football twice a week wasn't just going to cut it. I had to prepare to say as if I'd already got on, as if it was a yes from every stage, as if I was definitely going to do this course. And, um, you know, 40,000 other people wasn't going to do this course. So, you know, I sacrificed. My diet changed massively. I was training I as if I was training to join, you know, the armed forces. I'd bought a Bergen for the first time because um, I never knew what a Bergen was before SAS Who Dares wins. I was doing a lot of mountain and hill running, which is something I'd never done before. i stopped drinking alcohol completely. Um, and my time spent sleeping um, was something I'd never thought about, you know, going to bed at a certain time, making sure there was nine hours. So all these things that I was thinking about answers the first question. I always, I, it was always a yes, I can do it because I'm living, I'm living and breathing it to make sure that when I go and I get there and I will get there, um, I'm as prepared as I possibly can be. And I've got no excuses. Should I, should I and my arm, take my armband off on that first day? Because it's one of them things, you know, when, if you've ever watched the series, People take their armbands off on the first day and you think, you know, you've prepared six months for that.
1: Yeah, six months for that.
2: That, for that one opportunity, for that armband to come off within six hours because you've just been given a culture shock.
1: So, the, the, and the, I, I, I God,
2: No, so it was the, it was, it was the fear of, of that and being prepared. So yeah. the minute I decided to apply was the minute I knew I could do it.
1: So you knew you could to do it. answer question t- one. Yeah, you had a tick for that. And you, I've already noticed that specific terminology you're using, and you said it right from the start, and you explained why, that you saw it as a course. It wasn't a game show to you, it wasn't a TV programme to you, it wasn't an, a, uh, an adventure for you, it was a course. And I think that's quite, quite important and significant in this. So you, knew you, or you, you said to yourself you could do it. The next one was, could it work? What, what, what does that mean in this context? What would it working mean?
2: I, uh, I think you know does your lifestyle fit you know i didn't have a child at the time so i'm looking at some of the other recruits who had children Um, i'll give you an example there was a solicitor on there um there was a solicitor on there a girl one girl. i think she left after day four but even in the hotel she was down the road for me and she was still working she was still you know Replying to case files, she, she, up until the day before the course started, she had two kids. Her lifestyle was quite hectic. And I use her in, as, as an example because I didn't have that. So that it could work for me. I had the time to train. I had the time to eat certain food. I had the time and the money to do what I had to do to prepare. So, you know, the only barrier in my, in my uh, um, story was, was work, was school. It was term time. You know, I had, a, I had a year 10 cohort, head of year that was preparing for the GCSE mocks. You know, I've built up these relationships with kids and parents who are now no struggling. So my, my barrier was these students for three weeks. You know, I've got them, I've taught these students from year seven. I've raised them like my own all the way through and they're right at the end now. GTA 10 mocks for me are the one of the most important things because they prepare you for your original GCSEs. So, you know, was school going to allow me to leave in the middle of their mocks, which was, you know, a, a big a big question mark. Now, the original answer to that question was no. Um, you know, I put forward, look, this is where I'm up to. Channel 4 producers actually wrote me a letter Supporting it, saying this is this will be a great intervention. You'll be able to come back and tell the kids his experience, his story, and supported me as a recruit. But ultimately, they don't pay my wages. A lot of people don't know, but you don't get paid to go on SS two as Wins the only thing that's paid for is your expenses to get there and your food. It's not a paid exp. It's not a paid experience. You don't win anything. Yeah. But in my opinion, there was. A, I was going there to find myself, and I know we'll get into the reason I went there, but
1: that, that means um, lead, yeah. probably the next part right so you, you evidently yeah. the, the question of can you do it you had the drive to do it that's evidently clear from what you've said and the example you've given could it work yeah. and you've picked out the fact that you had the environment to be able to do that with some barriers but maybe not as significant of barriers as other people meant that yes now i think we get it into the, the next part of is it worth it? What, what what is is it worth it? What was what was your objective of doing it? Why do it? You're not getting paid for it.
2: There's no prize money. What what do you want to get out of this? So I think from being um, a very young young boy, I've always wanted to to challenge myself. And when I say challenge myself, there was um there was there was a man that came into my life age nine. Okay, and this we'll talk a little bit about this man later. But this man was. Um, the first person I remember that wasn't family-related to have a positive impact on my life and someone I still think about to this day whenever I'm faced with a bit of adversity, okay? Now, I say that because um, when I, I achieve something or when I feel like I've achieved something, I always want to, to achieve more. I think it's a natural human reaction. But for me, um, football has always been my, my go-to. You know, it's always been my release. Now, when you come into to the latter stages of your career, you kind of start to think, well, you know, what what what's going to happen when I stop playing? You know, eighteen years I've been playing football, and I've been chasing this this high every Saturday, you know, that it gives me. Um, but I always didn't, didn't think that was enough. And one day, I I decided to, to to look myself in the mirror, and and I didn't, I wasn't proud of myself. Uh, and it was due to a couple of different benefit beneficial factors, but I wasn't proud of what I'd achieved to date. So my why was to, 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 go on, to go on to this course and prove that I could be pushed to my boundaries um, and mentally I was strong enough to, to, to do it. Now, a lot of people sit at home and, and you know, they watch it and they think, yeah, I'll be able to do it and, and I wouldn't be able to do it. And they don't, they don't really know what they're capable of. And I just didn't know what I was capable of. I know what my mindset is and I know how far I can push myself. I didn't know whether I was capable of, of of completing such a such a brutal course, which um, which you can only take your after anyone that that, that joins the, the the forces. But the special forces is just something just something elite. It's just on a different level, and that was my why in, in terms of me wanting to know whether psychologically, mentally, physically, you know, I was this natural leader that everyone says I am, um, and again wanting to make certain people in my life life proud that I felt wasn't proud of me anymore Uh, and that wasn't something that would happen nothing nothing gave him the the excuse nothing gave me the excuse to think that it was just a mindset thing it was a mindset shift I don't know you know lockdown gave me a lot of time to think and reflect on my own life to see where how far i would come because you should only ever look back to see how far you've come but I kind of I was I was on autopilot just happy being being in the lane I was in, I didn't want to look look around the corner, I didn't want to take a step into the unknown and it's that fear of the unknown that made me want to see, do you know what, let me see if I've got this in me let me apply and see how far I can get and that was my why because I've been on autopilot and I'm, and I'm kind of just drifting through life and I don't want to drift through life, I want to inspire and to inspire you've got to do, you've got to step outside of your comfort zone and to step outside of your comfort zone means you've got to do something you've never done before and you've got to be willing to to do something you've never done before, and and, and that was my, that was my main why, um, you know, to 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 prove someone someone right, someone who who I know believed in me, who my relationship with was kind of dwindling, to kind of fulfil this need, you know, that football's given me for eighteen years, uh, and I know my career, you know, is coming to a kind of an end in terms of playing at a top level, and or a semi pro level, and to prove to myself, you know, that I didn't want to be an autopilot anymore, and I, and I actually can take, take, the, take the switch off and take that step into the unknown because once I do that, I've committed. And once you commit, you know, there's only you and the commitment phase that, that that can show how far you've come and, you know, you could fail, you could not, but it's that fear of failure that's got me to where I am today.
1: And on that fear of failure, you've, you've done your week's isolation, you premiering you're, you're about to get a call at 4am to, to get in and do this and there'll be people watching this show that question how real it is and how far out of your comfort zone you actually get and how, how realistic failure might be. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: This is a quite a common question, to be honest, Lewis. It's, um, a lot of people think it's a show. I have to go back to what you said before, a show. It's not a show. This is why I call it a course. Um, the DS in Ant Middleton, Foxy, you know, Billy and Melvin, who, who did it this year, they, they don't know the recruits. They don't know you beforehand. All they get is 20 pictures. They don't even get your name. They get 20 pictures. They number you from 1 to 22. Sorry, 22 pictures. And that's all they get. Now, the day before, you have to write um, a short essay. Two, two pages of A4 called Who Am I? Um, I've still, still got this essay because I felt it was relevant to keep one day, you know, whether... My daughter's older; I can explain to her. But when I was writing this essay, it was a short essay about yourself and um, you know what you why are you there, what are you doing there, what do you want to achieve. And whilst I was writing my essay, I realised that, do you know what? This is not this is not a fucking game. You know this is this is hitting home now. I'm talking about stuff. I'm writing stuff down, Lewis, that I've never wrote down before. I'm talking about you know. A, 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 my mother, in a way, I've never spoke about my mother before, and I'm thinking, I'm really leaving myself vulnerable now to the nation, and it didn't kick in until the night before, and this is when my self-doubt creeped in, you know, am I doing the right thing? Some of the stuff I'm going to speak about, it's going to be televised. You know, how is it going to affect the people back home when they see it? This is things I've never thought about before, so to just to, you know, give you a bit of a glimpse into how real it was, that was very, very real for me, and when I was writing that Who Am I letter, I actually struck a struck a you know, a few tears. Um, it was difficult. It was a difficult letter to write. But I wrote it. I sealed it. Bump. That was me. Switched off. Put it in the envelope. One of the producers picked it up. 4 a.m. comes. You kind of know what's coming, but you don't know what's coming. You know, we get put onto this onto this train. Then the cameras come out. Now, the camera crew have got the job to do. They need to, they need to televise it because Channel 4 wants to show it. But the DS, they've got a job to do. They don't care about the cameras. To give you an example of that, we was running down, um, after the first task, he was running down back to uh, the trucks, the wagons, and one of the camera crew got in, got in the way and Ant Middleton fucked him off. Sorry for swearing, but he, he threw him out of the way and he said, get the fuck out of the way. I'm sick of these cameras getting in my face. He went, if you don't catch it, you don't catch it. That's not my problem. I'm here to run this course. Oh. And it was like, some of us looked at each other and thought, the hell, like, he, he, he's, he's not for TV, he's the most down-to-earth, genuine person, you know, I think I've met, I went to see him yesterday, um, he did a tour yesterday, I went to see him and watched him and I spoke to him and then, you know, he keeps in touch with some of the recruits, that was no, nothing, nothing on that was for TV, in my opinion, from what I see, and my personal story was for TV, now, people say, you know, it's got it's got its agenda, you've got to get certain races on there, you've got to see, you've got to try and equal right it, but You know, that's not the reason I applied. You know, that's that's politics, that's Channel 4, that's TV. But the show, the course, the course was as authentic as as I I can imagine. And every day, for me, I found was a struggle. Was a struggle, you know.
0: I'm a massive fan of it, Sean, like you are. And I've watched it all throughout the series. We I've read all the books. I I love everything to do with special forces. Uh, I watched the Australian one, actually. The Australian one's very good. Uh, with yeah, their yeah. on there, but I want to I want to approach back to perseverance, and I want to yeah. I want to go to that scene where you had a bit of it, you broke down, you you referred to earlier, it broke your body and mind, and I could see that physically, and you're a big strong lad, and I admire yeah. everything you did physically, but that yeah. time when you were sat in that room and they broke you mentally, and you had the yeah. tears, and you talk about your upbringing, can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah so jumping me to talk about when I was actually in the room.
0: Yeah that would be great and how yeah how that power of perseverance it just at that point it just melted didn't it everything just melted it was incredible powerful moment.
2: Are you on about the, the call home or when I was called in after the first task because it was yeah, when you were called in
0: we called him for the right. little chat.
2: Yeah so um, yeah so obviously that was day that was day 9 now a day on on the on the course feels like a week you know you don't know when you're going to get dragged out of your of your bunker won 't call it a bed because it's a little camp bunker um, you don 't know when you're going to get dragged out of that. your calories have started to deficit at this point, so they start you on about fifteen hundred calories a day and then they decrease it by hundred calories each day, until so you end up on about eight hundred you only have a little bowl of porridge so all these elements are taken into so you're still expected to burn more than two thousand calories because you're constantly working all day um so, I'm just giving you a bit of an idea of how my mindset was before I went into that room. Okay, now Lewis might know a little bit about this, but when, you, when you're hooded, because you, they put these hoods on you everywhere you go, you never see where you're going. When you're in the trucks, you're hooded. And when you go into the, into the room, you're hooded. Now, the walk to the room feels about 10, 10 minutes long, but it's actually not. It's actually about 20 seconds because they do a couple of turns, you go around a couple of corners. But when you're hooded, all of a sudden, you're in darkness. Okay, so, there's, there's, there's eye goggles on. There's ear defender's on and there's a hood on. Now, when you can't hear, see, smell, think, all these sensory things that the human, the human body needs, you're then battling with your mind, okay? So, you know, where am I going? What am I doing? You know, you know why am I getting dragged in here? What are they going to say? Am I going to say the right thing? What do I respond? So all of a sudden, my mind's on overdrive ticking, which is exhausting, by the way. So I sit down, he pulls the thingy off, um, and then they stare at you for about 25 seconds. You don't say a word. <laughs> on, t- on, t- on, t- on TV, obviously it condenses it down because it has to cram it in a, in a, in a one hour, one hour show. So you don't see it, but it's a 25-second death death stare, I would call it. Um, so they're then they're, they're wanting you to think about what to say in your thinking. And then once they start talking, and then once you start talking, everything kind of then feels real, you know. Um, and when they said, you know, tell us a bit about your background, I then knew, right, I need to talk about stuff. A, my mum's going to hear. And B, my dad's going to hear. And C, I'm going to hurt someone. Because the only way to, to to progress in life, the only way to be per- to persevere with anything is to be brutally honest with yourself. And if you can't be brutally honest with yourself, then you're just you're kidding yourself. So... You know, I was in there for over 45 minutes, but it condensed it down. It only shown bits of it on TV. And they dug so deep into my past because they felt um, I had more to give. They see me as a natural leader. That's why I was chosen for the task in the first place. But they felt I was hiding something. He felt there was something I wasn't quite, quite telling them. Um, and he was right. You know, these people are trained for a reason. They read people. Um and something I've never told, you know, I've never spoke about. You know, this is the first podcast I've done, but I've never spoken about. I've only spoken about it in my book, which is coming out next year. Um, and it was when I was 16, I came home from school. Um, I just sat my English GCSE. I had one in the morning and had another GCSE in the afternoon. You know, you could they let you go home between your, your GCSE exams. So I went home for the break before I had my English reading uh, exam in, in the afternoon. And when I got hot, when I got home, uh, the door was jammed, so I have tried to get in for my key, and I couldn't, I couldn't jam, the, I couldn't get in. There was something behind the door, but I knew it was something heavy. So when I've opened the door, um, I've pushed it through. I could see it with my mum. Uh, mum was lay on the floor. Uh, my mum was a heroin addict, and she'd taken, um, you know, she'd injected herself with in heroin, and she had a bad turn on it, and she was lay on the floor, and I thought she was dead. So I put immediately put him into the recovery position with no first aid training whatsoever. This is just something that happened. I just put him in the recovery position and I, and I dialed nine 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 so again, something i don't I can speak about now, but i've I've only spoken about it a couple of times. Um, when they asked me what I was hiding, I told them that you know that was my that the flashback to that seemed to come back to me a lot when I was on when I was when I was sleeping on SES when I was trying to get my head down, or when I was tired, or when I was mentally drained. Um and that wasn't the reason I applied, but that was that was that was something I'd never spoken about on on, on um on a public platform. Um, and it's it's something I've never spoken about with my mum. You know, that comes that conversation, when the ambulance came and taken her, when she'd come around, she realised what had happened. You know, her son had found her 16 years old. I had an exam in the afternoon. I had to go and sit because in them days it wasn't, um, you know, you, you, you kind of didn't get special consideration like you do now. You can get special consideration now and you can write to the exam board, but that's all in a timely manner. I had two hours before I had to go back to school. So, um, and I went back to school and I'll tell you about that, that, that a little bit later, but uh, the ambulance came, took her to hospital. Um, I told him I, I had an exam to do. Uh, I didn't tell anyone at school. Um, i went then went back to school and i sat my, my english exam with 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 that incident that had happened prior when I got out of the exam clearly my mind wasn't in the right place and i um I told uh, i made a phone call um to well i was I, I had a phone call off my older brother to be told that my mum had discharged herself from hospital and had made her way back home she didn't even want medical attention so when they was asking me these questions and talking about my childhood, that that's that's the one story they never shown on camera, but that's the story that mattered the most um, and was the most to me in terms of it. it kind of got got me through, you know. I realised, you know what, I have been through a lot, and everyone's been got their own demons, but that was a demon I was battling, and I kind of wanted my mum to hear that, hear that story and how it affected me because we've never had the chance to kind of reflect and talk about it because you kind of outgrows and things get buried. A lot of things get buried in the past. So there was a lot of emotion in that room, and I spoke about stuff I didn't plan to speak about. And you know, Channel Four kind of give you the heads up when you're in there. When you're in that room, there's something you're not comfortable with. If they ask you a question, you don't want know what to say. Don't answer it, because Channel Four will just edit it out. You know, they can't show you not talking. So that was in my head. But the minute I'm in there, I'm all of a sudden talking about something I didn't plan to talk about. You know, the racism thing when Mum my, my, my moved us away was 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 difficult um, and I feel like they focused more on that but that wasn't my that wasn't my story you get what I'm saying I wasn't there because of race you know it wasn't nothing to do with that yeah I'd had an experience of racism but I was there to prove to my to my brother and my mum that you know certain things affected me as a child and um, I wanted the people anyone watching to say you know what if you've got a parent who's a drug, a drug user if you've got a parent who drinks alcohol if you've got a parent who abuses you You will still be okay. That is not your reason to just get get up and quit and turn to violence or crime or drug dealing or whatever it is you feel you need to turn to because of that one experience. It's not. Now, I failed that GCSE, and it would be easy for me to say, well, you know, two hours before I found my mother on the floor. But no, I failed that GCSE because I didn't revise for it. (laughs) That's the God's honest truth. You know, I (laughs) I wasn't prepared for it anyway. But for years, I used that, that moment as, a, as an excuse for everything, you know, to, to not apply for jobs, to not apply for college, to not, you know, be the best version of myself because I was holding my mum account. I was holding her accountable for me ultimately failing my GCSEs. Uh, I didn't get the college course I wanted to get on because I needed that, I needed that exam grade, I needed to get seen that exam to get, to get onto the course I wanted to. So, look, it brings me back to, to being in that room and going through all the emotions, um, but I've gone full circle now, I'm a grown man and I know that perseverance and, and coming through it and you know, not using any excuse that you've been through in your past as a reason to quit or fail was the reason uh, I was sat there uh, and it was the reason that it brought so many emotions back
1: And, and are we right, Sean, in, in thinking that the you just referred to a, a story that you shared there about racism was that the story around um, the bleach that you talked about? It was correct, yeah. So
2: you know, speak about that now. jumping to go into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, yeah. So, yeah. So where I was raised, um, the reason I'm a Man City fan, I, was, I could see Main Road from my door. Yeah. Uh, Side, Main Road. Right? If you've ever been,
1: West Side. Yeah, uh, have you ever yeah, been to Main? Yeah, seen yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: the Moss Side. Yeah, um, slap banging in the middle of a council estate, uh, and I could hear you know the family stand every every Saturday. And I loved it, you know, my dad bought me the very first brother kit, you know, with the uh, Georgie King Cladsey on the back. So, you know, I was very much, very much, you know, in the, in the, for cultural reasons, in, in, in the environment I was raised, I was, you know, I was, I was very much a, a city fan that came from a, a multicultural background. Because at that point, you had a lot of uh, Afro-Caribbean families living, living in Moss Side, uh, with Somalian families, Asian families, different families, including white British families. Then when my mum obviously discovered uh, drugs and, you know, she had a, a wrong crowd, my nana, who we was living with at the time, understood that, you know, she, she, she can't live under a roof and raise two kids like this. So my mum repented and moved us away. So she took me out of the school I was in, you know, she took me uh, me and brother away up into East Manchester, which is predominantly white British. Now, I was roughly nine years of age, ten years of age at this point. So change is something I've, I now understand. I didn't like, you know, I didn't I didn't cope well with change. My older brother was fine, but me, I couldn't couldn't grasp change. You know, I was in, I was used to waking up and seeing Main Road. I was used to listening to City on a on a Saturday, and you know, I was used to the friends that I had. All of a sudden, I've been put into a new school, um, living on on a, a predominantly white council estate in 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 an area called Newton Heath, which is which is East Manchester um and actually for the first two weeks we had to live in a hostel because my mum was waiting for a house so we was all sharing a room myself my mum my brother um uh, with a little communal area and a kitchen that we that was shared with other people in this hostel so again I've gone from my own bedroom to to you know to this little space again more change um then my mum couldn't get me in the school for the first two weeks so I spent some time on the estate kicking about my football and uh, and that was the first kind of experience I had of, of feeling lonely, uh, feeling like I had no one. Then finally, I get into school. Um, d- day one, you know, was fine. Gets put in a class, gets budded up with a with a good friend called Jordan, who I'm still good friends with to this day, uh, age nine. But then the very first break time I had, I goes out and there's a group of kids playing football. So I thought, well, you know, I'm good at football. I'll, I'll go over and see if I can join in. And I kind of was just kind of stood there waiting for someone to say, you know, Come over, come, come and come and join in. Uh, it never happened, and that didn't happen for about a week and a half um, until I was doing the school football trial. So, the school football trial in primary school—it's literally just the game of football with your PE teacher, who's your teacher for every subject. Um You put different coloured bibs on, and, and you see you show what you can do. Now, luckily for me, fortunately for me, I was always gifted at football. It's something that's always come natural, natural to me, and I, a and I, and I kind of took the nick a bit, but yeah, I, you know, I stood out uh, and it didn't bode well, it didn't bode well with some of the other kids, some of the kids off off, off the estate that I lived on um, and, I, and I quickly inherited this name, Black Sean, now the kids would call me Black Sean, you know, in front of other people, in front of teaching staff and it was kind of, it's um, ex- just left, it was accepted, so I thought that was normal, so it wasn't as if there was another Sean in the school, there was just Black Sean, which was myself. Now, um, the bit that really tips this over the edge, and I, I would say one of the reasons the bleach my skin was the PE teacher. Um, i never forget his name. He was called Mr. Norton. We was um, having a game of Wembley, Wembley doubles. And he said, right, uh, pick your favourite player. Now, even though I was a City fan at the time, I, I watched a lot of Manchester United games. And Manchester United were the team at that time. It was your, um, you know, your, your era of Cole and York up front. Sherringham and Solskjaer on the bench, you know, you Beckham, Skulls, uh, Buck, Keen, Defence, your Stamp, uh, you Dennis Sir and your Peach. you know, this, it was that area where they won, they'd just won the treble, I think, the year after they'd won the treble. So, you no, know, that's something, that, I was a striker at the time, so that's that Cole and Dwight York-Andy um, Cole partnership was something I think a lot of people remember from that area They was prolific together. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Um, so, so I, Andy, Cole, Andy Cole was one of my favourite players. So we're kind of going around saying, right, you pick your favourite player, you pick your favourite player, you pick your favourite player. And, you know, at the time, David Beckham was also one of, one of my best players. So I said, I just think I wanted to be on free kick. So I had Beckham's um, Adidas Predators at the time. So I said, oh, I'll be David Beckham. And the teacher said, you can't be David Beckham. And everyone looked at me to say, he said, you're going to have to be Andy Cole or Dwight York. And this, all of a sudden, these, these laughs... And it sounded like, mate, the whole world laughed, but the laughter of the whole class was like, on the outside, I just said he can't be David Beckham because David Beckham's white and he brill- drills his, his hair and he has curtains. And, you know, and I kind of laughed with it, Lewis. Does that make sense? Because I said I'd be David Beckham and he was like, no, you're Andy Cole, you're Dwight York. Um, and until I got home, I realized he said that because Dwight York and Andy Cole, were, you, know, were, were, you know, were black or of colour. Um, and it was more so that the rest of the class laughed with it. So now here's me thinking, I don't want to be a laughing stock. I'm good at something, and I'm still getting laughed at, and I'm still not being allowed to to be who I am. And I never told my mum, I never told my brother, I never told anyone. I kind of just accepted the fact my name was Black Sean, and accepted the fact that I couldn't be a, a white player if I wanted to emulate a white player. Do, do you know what I mean? So mm. I just thought, I don't, I don't want to be this color anymore, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm not full black. I'm, my, my dad's white Irish, you know, my dad's Irish. My mum's uh, black Jamaican, you know, mixed race. I'm half, I'm half white, half black. So why, why am I brown? These questions I'm asking myself is why, why didn't I come out on the lighter, sh- lighter side of black? Why, why have a white, white, uh, white person, the black person have a child? Why do I come out brown? I started to think, think these stupid things. Um, so I remember buying some gel or asking my mum to get me some gel, which wasn't for Afro hair. It was for, for you know, for white British hair or white, a white person's hair. I tried to gel my hair the same way as David Beckham's. Never forget it. I tried to gel my hair and it wouldn't do it because I've got Afro Caribbean hair. It's just coiling, just, just bouncing back. Um, didn't work. So I thought, well, I don't you know. What else can I do? Michael Jackson at the time, that story of him bleaching his skin was still quite relevant and in the news. And I could see that he was going whiter. Um, so I got him from school and every day, it was like, when I got him from school, I knew my mum would, wouldn't be in. Uh, my brother would go straight out with his friendship group. So I used to go into the kitchen and, and I, used to pl- I used to pour bleach on my hand at first just to see if it would work and I'd rub it. And it didn't hurt. And it was not until I started to go a little bit further up my arm uh, that I realised it was burning and it was hurting. And I had to start hiding the marks and... Um, you know, it got to a point where it was hurting that much. I couldn't do it anymore. It was not picked up on by anyone at home. It was not picked up on by anyone at school. It was a self-made decision through maturity. You know, two years had passed. I was going into year six. I started to discover, you know, puberty. I was a young adolescent boy and I started to grow and get taller and fill out and realise, you know what? I'm not being called Black Sean anymore. I'm not having I'm not, it. Um, so then I, I've gone from being a bit of a victim to being the abuser. And then I started fighting and I started taking this anger out of bleaching my skin and being embarrassed about it on other kids. So, you know, it's upsetting to say, mate, but I turned into a bully to take the pressure off me. If you was ginger, if you was overweight, if you had spots, I'd go for you, you know, to take the pressure off me. Um, And this is something I see in schools today in my own role, and especially as a uh, head of year, a lot of people who bully, they do it because they're insecure about something with themselves. Uh, and I see the signs more than ever because I've been through it myself. And I think that's what makes me relatable. Yeah. So, you know, it was a difficult time. Um, I, I got through it all, on my own, but my reasons for doing it was, was, was mainly linked to the fact that, you know, I wasn't accepted for who I was. Yeah. It's interesting, Sean, because you, I, I just
0: want to thank you for being brutally honest, first and foremost, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So- it's it's so powerful, uh, and I know it's it's hard to bring these kinds of things back up. And yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, super powerful. But I wanna I wanna link this back to how important is it knowing yourself, and then it's that connection with perseverance. And I wanna bring up the interrogation phase, which yeah. I know for you 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 found that particular phase really difficult. You're in that room yeah. putting yeah. stress positions you're depleted of yeah. all your sensory. What did that do to you then at that stage of the course? And how, what were you thinking about in that time? Was it bringing back all these memories?
2: Alan, I'm going to be brutally honest with you again. Um, when I got to, before, if, before I started the course, I said to myself, if I can get to interrogation, having watched the show, it looks the most easiest because it's not physically demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to myself, I get to interrogation, that was my target. Um, then I'll pass that course because physically I was near the front uh, with Connor. who was the Irish, the Irish boy. He passed it. He was just head, ahead, mine miles head of everyone, but I, I was up, I was up with him. I was always second and third in, in the ranks in terms of fitness, but I don't think anyone can prepare you for, for interrogation. I, I genuinely, genuinely don't. And for my, for my experience, you know, even needing the toilet was something you couldn't do. You had to wait. Um, and, unless you were physically desperate, that's the only time they let you out of that room. So, you know, again, they condense it on TV, but I was in there for 11 hours and 17 minutes, I was told. Um, and the minute the goggles go on, it's, um, do you know the, 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 the clown goggles that you put on? It's like they're like bear goggles and you see what someone would drunk would see. And it's like uh, when you're hypnotized, it's like these circles. So that's what you see when you've got the goggles on soon as that earphone went on, on the left ear, which um, is something they don't tell you, or, 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 or unless anyone does podcasts you'd know about, it's a woman getting raped. And it varies from a woman getting raped. And all I can hear was, no, no, no. Then this side is a, a pig getting butchered. So urgh, 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 urgh. Now, you combine those, those two together with the goggles stress position is you know you're up off the floor your hands are tied your back's forward and you kind of and they they, change stress positions every six minutes all you've got is your mindset all you've got mind your thoughts and and that is the only thing that will get you through I actually started hallucinating after about six hours I was seeing Simpson's character I was seeing Homer Simpson Simpson's characters (laughs) were just running running across the room mate honestly it was it was madness um, don't forget we've been up for 24 hours on escape and evasion we're yeah. cold we're wet we've had no food with an apple with an apple that was it so you know calorie deficit sleep deprived now you're in a stress position we've got with all this to think about so how did I get through that first hour uh, I'm a massive Oasis fan <laughs> okay um, my favourite Oasis song is uh, Champagne Soup and Over I repeatedly was singing Champagne Supernova," and Over repeatedly and it was getting me through. It was working. I'm like right, I found my cliche, It's dropped after an hour. Champagne Supernova would stack the lyrics. I forgot after singing them for so long, not thinking, right. Then, all of a sudden, myself as a child again. I'm seeing you know flashbacks from primary school and secondary school and you know difficulties with my mum and all the positive people in my life. I'm saying, look, you can do this. Keep going. You're near the end. But there's only so much of that you can do then that's, that starts to fade away. Then hunger kicks in. And um, when hunger kicks in, and when thirst kicks in, I think that's when it shows who you really are and how much you've got to give. Now, just before I spoke to the umpire, it was three or four people. I think everyone had asked to speak to the umpire at one point, but they give you another opportunity. This is something else they don't tell you on Channel 4. So I spoke to the umpire, and he... Um, he convinced me to give it one more go. He said, Look, you, 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 you don't know how far you've come. Like, don't stop now. So I was thinking, bloody hell, I bet they don't do that for everyone. You know, they give me <laughs> another opportunity to go back in that room, put them air defenders on. So I went back in and I give it another go. Um, and there was a certain stress position where you stand up and you put your arms on the wall. It looks the easiest one, mate. You put your arms on the wall. But it was the hardest one. My arms oh. were killing. And I couldn't cope with it. And I was thinking, you know, I've just spoke to the umpire. I do not know how long I'd seen him because you, you, your mind's all over the place. But what more have I got to prove? More have I got to prove? I've got further than I expected. I didn't think I'd get past day five. You know, I've, I've, I've said what I needed to on camera. So, you know, if anything, my brother will see that call, you know, we made. That was a big moment for me, that, when I spoke to my brother. And, yeah. you know, I've, 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 I've exceeded my expectation. But then the winner room is like, but you've not got long left, and you're at the end, and you know you, you get through this, you can pass, and all the negatives, the self doubt, and you know the what more have I got to prove? I think I, I was at peace with myself, mate. I think writing, writing some of the stuff down, I'd written from the very first day of the Who Am I that essay opened up a lot of a lot of um, emotional connectives that I've never visited before. Going into the room, speaking about my mum, something I've never done before. And I felt, mate, like oh, this weight has, was just lifted off my shoulders. And I now understood the person I was. I now finally got it. it, it yeah. sunk. The, penny, the penny had dropped. I understood my purpose in life. And it was to help others share my story and help others. Um, and if I can do that, and it, if I can reach at least one person in the world, then then my job was done. And that was my final thought before I put my arm back up and said, I, I'm ready. You know, I've, I've I've give everything I've got my whole life. flashed before me in that interrogation, I learned it all, all my whole life, and I understood the person I needed to be when I got back to England. Yeah. So, when I went in for the second time, he said, "I can see, I can see. You. This is your decision. Um So just wait here. The chief instructor will come." And then Ant Middleton comes through the door and he says, "You fucking dick! You had an hour left." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Can I, can I go back in?" He said, "No, no, not because your second time." He said, "I'm gonna to have to take your number, but you had an hour left." He said, "You were one of the front runners, you know, you yourself and Connor were one of the front runners." He said, "You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have, took, you, you shouldn't have, you should have just got through that last hour." But, Alan, you don't know how long it feels like you've been in there for so long, mate. It's the most. Uh,
0: I it, know. It was funny, Sean, because when we were when we were doing the research for the for the yeah. podcast, I thought I, I, I turned on the episode. I'm thinking. Sean's got to have made the final. He's got, to, he's got to have been in the last three. I couldn't believe it, Sean. I mean, no, and I have to ask no. you now, are you a bit gutted about it?
2: I'm absolutely gutted. And after it, you, you, get, something, you get intense psychological help with Channel 4 because, and that's the only thing I've said, a, a wonderful lady called Victoria, she's worked with all of the series from Series 1. And she said to me, I know you're going to say you're gutted because you knew you had an hour left. And I said, it's because I know that when I watched episode six, the final one, I'd have I'd have passed it, mate. Yeah, I physi- physically, I was there, um, and it's an hour of, of my life. But look, got over that phase now. I was gutted, but now I've, got, I've, I've I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I got to the to the time I got because there was a lot of times before it where you know the physical task demanded more of more of me than I ever thought, and you know I didn't think I'd get through some of the i didn't think i'd get to day five so i have to go off how my expect, expectations were before before i went on the on the course i didn't think i, I, I thought i'd get to the end but did i think i was going to pass not in a million years mm. so as you get through each day you realize that you no know, you could pass um and it's just because he told me i had an hour left i kicked myself for about six weeks mm. um it's understandable you know, is uh, yeah, I speak to the two lads, the, the, yeah, sorry, I speak to the two lads who passed now, but still good friends of mine, and, you know, I ask them what, you know, what have you benefited from it, and, you know, you know what, what's come from it, you know, from your passing, there was like, nothing, nothing's come from it. One of them actually suffers with severe mental health. You know, we had to have extensive counselling after the show had aired because of interrogation. You know, he didn't go back to work for six months, so I went back to work two days later.
0: You know, <laughs> good effort.
2: <laughs> channel... Channel Four, me quick to get you on a plane home, and you know because the celebrities were coming in to film their version straight after.
0: Does does that come back, Sean, to to you showing high levels of perseverance? Going back to that GCSE moment where two hours after finding your mum, you've gone and sat your exam. Does is it that your life experiences have shaped then what you've become, and you've developed that skill as a result of that? Is
2: that right? I would definitely say so, Alan. Yeah, I would say, you know, you are what you see, um, you know, from a, from a very young age, you know, you learn from your parents. It's learned behaviour until you can, you can you function on your own. Um, but then what makes you is your memories, you know. Um, and I don't know why I wanted to go and sit the exam, but if I think about it now, at the time, I, I, you know, I just thought it's important and I need to sit my exam. Uh, not, I need to follow my mum to the hospital and be with her. I didn't think that. I thought, you know, I need to sit this exam because it's going to set me up for for this college course that I want to do, which was, you know, sports science, and that was my goal. I was very, I was still very career driven, even though I was dealing with all these barriers at home. So it stems from me wanting always to 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 to, 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 to move forward in life with the bigger picture. Um, yeah. And it, I don't it, think. You, uh, so it's, it's think a you motivation teach, teach theory. It's yeah. the
0: motivation theory of McClelland who, who talks about the need to achieve the, right. the, or the need to belong or yeah. a need to have power. Now, it strikes me very much you've got a really strong need to achieve. What about the other two, the belonging and the, and the power? How does that fit in as well?
2: The belonging, Alan, definitely hits home. Um, because if you go back to me wanting to fit in, I was trying to belong to something. I was trying to be part of a group because I didn't want to be a loner. I didn't want to be on my own. I didn't want to be known as the kid who's got no friends. I wanted to belong to something because when I belong to something, I feel part of it. I excel. Um, And, you know, the achievement is, it's just, it's a personal, you know, accolade. My dad went to jail, you know, he didn't, he wasn't a role model. I never had a positive role model. and I always you talk said about to myself, that
0: guy, Sean. What about that guy you talked about when you were nine? What, what, yeah, what? so
2: I've got I've, I've got a picture. I don't know whether you can see that there. Yeah. Um, so that's that man's name is Damien Machstavic, and um, he met me at the time of the racism. Um, he met me age ten. He took me. He was actually at a, at a birthday party, which my mum took me to, and he was one of the parents at the party. And it was kind of like a drunken, a drunken. he was drunk, he was, he was drunk. He was going to the toilet. The adults were downstairs, the kids were upstairs, and I was in the toilet. And he said, oh, you know, you look like a footballer, you look like a winger, said to me. Um, I've, got a, I've got a team I run on a Saturday called Mostenbrook and I want you to come and play for me team. You can, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can be David Beckham. Yeah, you can be David Beckham. So anyway, I told my mum. Anyway, mum didn't drive, couldn't really get me there, so he came and picked me up. And I never forget the car he had; it was a 1940s like old, old Chevrolet thing that he had in it. he called it Melinda? This car, it was a real, real <laughs> old car. Um, and I never forget. I got in the car, and he had Frank Sinatra on uh, "I've Got You Under My Skin," and this is my karaoke song, by the way. This now because <laughs> I heard it. Massive fan of Frank Sinatra from that day. Anyway, he takes me to um, to training. Signs on, sees what I can do, and then that was it. We built this this bond. He became like a father figure to me, seeing how good I was at football. Uh, and I played the Saturday. I scored an hat trick in my very first game um, for him. And then he picked me up in his own time, and he would take me for food with some of some of the other some of the other the other lads because his, his nephew played for the team. Uh, and everything he said kind of stuck with me. So my very first session, he taught me about uh, being disciplined. Because uh, I had this thing where I swore, I swore a lot as a kid. I used to swear all the time, uh, and if I didn't get the ball, I was I'd frustrated and I'd, I'd, I'd demand the ball, but I'd demand it in a in a negative way. Fucking give me the ball, and he taught me about you know swearing is not good, and you know it, it only gives you this bad this bad name, and you, you come across as a bad kid. So stop swearing. And then his team talks always stick with me. I use them today with my own team, my own year eleven football team. His team talk stick to me today around, you know, never giving up and earning the right to play. And it's this earning the right that follows me in life and anything I do. You've got to earn the right to do anything you do. You've got to earn the right, you know, to get people's respect. You've got to earn the right, you know, to qualify, you know, for, for your GCSEs. You've got to earn the right to, to gain people's respect. And it all stems from everything he he taught me. And when he, di- when he died, um, I felt I needed to make him proud. Even though I knew I'd made him proud, I felt... I felt I owed him and his family. Um, not an explanation, but I wanted to show him rather than tell him in words that you know the, the impact your your old man has had on me uh, is going to get me through this SAS course. And did I did you an interview him with him. Did you ever tell him? Did you
0: ever have I never got, to?
2: Tell- when he was di- so when he was dying in hospital, he was, on a, he was in, say, um, a hospice in Manchester, a brilliant hospice um, called the Christie, which they do a lot for, car- for, for cancer patients in the, in the last, last moments. But he was a very proud man. Uh, he'd lost so much weight. And his wife texted me and she said, look, he's not got long left, um, but, you know, he's asked for you. Um, some of his family didn't want to see him. He didn't want to see him. That, but he's asked for you. Can you get it down? I was in school at the time. Mine went blank. I just left, got my keys. And I drove down to the Christie. Um, and he gave me a note. And I don't know whether you can see, but there's a picture of Brian Robson there. A signed yeah. autograph of Brian Robson. Now, I got him that to kick him on in his first stage of chemo. And he, he actually beat it after I got it him. Anyway, he couldn't talk much, but on the back, I might get a bit stickier now, Alan, sorry. Um... <laughs> All right, take your time, Sean. No problem, mate. Sorry, mate. It's fine. Take your time, time. get a drink. (laughs) Note on the back, so he give it, give it me back. Give me this frame picture back. On the note on the back of the picture, he put the courage up to, um, to write and it said, <clears throat> It said, if I could live my life again, I wouldn't want to be anyone else but you. And honestly, it broke, <laughs> broke me, mate. It's just broke me. It broke me, mate, honestly. And, um that was it I was the last the last conversation I had with him so oh so there's your motivation Sorry. that yeah, you know, my dad wasn't around, so this is the man that I've seen seen because my life mass- massively changed when I met him because yeah. all of a sudden, I go back to what you've said about I had um hide belonging. I had achievement and I had uh, someone who believed in me for the first time. So that was outside the family unit. But, mate, that note, you know, it's, it's still here. It's on the back. I don't know if you can see it, but it's on the back of this, of this note, of this picture. And that picture is um, my last game at semi-professional level where I was captain and he was in and out, in and out of treatment. And I, I told his wife, I said, look, if you can get to a game, It'd be amazing. And he, had, he managed to get to the game. Um, and I brought that Bobby Robson for every game just in case he turned up. And he turned up and the club actually let me present him with it on the pitch. Um, and because of our connection, I met him through football. It was a massive, massive moment for me, that. Um, so I've actually f- forgot what what the topic was, mate. i have
0: be off a bit. But... Don't it don't matter. Just thanks yeah. for sharing. It, it, it's it's yeah. unbelievable. you it you've is. certainly answered
1: it. Sean, so I think as we pull this all together now, um, the, the question for me is it relates back to what you mentioned earlier about there was so much of who you were buried deep down that seems to have yeah. been exposed through this experience and, and as a result of this experience. And, you know, the fact that you're sharing thing, things such as this with us is, is phenomenal and very brave of you. So thank you again for doing that. But has, has it all been worth it?
2: Yeah so as you know there's, there's things in life that I think people won't ever talk about people bury things that deep they don't um they don't want to revisit them because it will open you know a chain of emotion it will open a memory that they probably don't want to think about it may it will open a door in their mind uh, that they are possibly not ready for and i think um I say all them things because that was myself. I was—I I didn't want to revisit times where you know I found my mum on the floor. I didn't want to revisit times where I've not believed in myself. I didn't want to revisit times where you know I felt at my worst because I'm not in that headspace anymore. But in order for us to evolve, in order for us to progress as people, in order for us to adapt and change to our environment, we have to understand who we really are. And if we can't do that, then we will never evolve and we will stay on autopilot and we will be in our comfort zone for the rest of our lives. Now, you know, my experience of SIS unlocked unlocked so many doors in my mindset that now I've started Sean Anthony Health and Wellness, and all I want to do is help people um, unlock their potential because you just can't see it without help, without listening to motivational speakers, without, you just can't do it on your own. Um and it's something I I always thought I could do on my own till um, that experience, and I truly believe in fate. You know, uh, Alan asked me before whether you know I was gutted not to pass the course. In general, being you know so close, there was only eleven hours left of the course. Believe it or not, when I bowed out, and yeah, I was gutted. But when I look back to the twenty-nine attempts, you know, doing twenty odd attempts, started doing that run, which I almost give up on. When I look back at all of the interview phases and. You know, the preparation, the preparation was key um, for me, you know, just to get onto SAS. I cut out so much I prove to myself that if I want to better myself, I can do it when I'm motivated by something. And it's that motivating factor that people need to keep going in life and they just won't see it unless unless, unless they've got something in there that allows them to be who they are.
1: And you know what, it's phenomenal that you're doing that and it comes back to that research Alan shared earlier from Glennon of it's almost like now you're using your power to support other people in helping them achieve and helping them feel like they belong. And and there's there's probably nothing more worthwhile in the world than than taking the time to do that. And the information and, and the stories and the perspective and opinion that you've shared with us today, you know, truly shows that that's something that you're incredibly passionate about, having...
2: Unwound yourself through all this. Yeah, and I think I see so many of um, the students I work with. I see so many of them in, in myself, um, and I, I suppose it probably be the same we 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 and uh, and Alan. Um, that I, I know how to help, and I'm trying to help, and I feel, um, you know, my my experiences can help anyone, and it's not just young people. It's now it's now adults as well. You know, I did um. A motivational talk for the Job Centre Plus. Not so long ago, when I spoke to over 300 people who were out of work with no aspirations, um, you know, and a lot of these people were just stuck in a daily routine. They were waking up midday, you know, they were eating junk food, and they were living on week to week off the uh, off, 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 off the gyro, off the benefits, and they just had no aspirations to kind of motivate themselves. But the people who wanted to change, and these people get categorised. Um, and I was once a person, you know, I'm not ashamed to say I've signed on myself. You know, I had a spell from 20 to 2023 where I was out of work. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with needing help from, 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 from the benefit system. But it's kind of looked down upon today and and, and these people are categorised. So, look, you know, I'm a product of my own environment and, you know, my own experience, my own past experience and things I never wanted to speak about are now my mo motivating factor, um, you know, even writing a book was something I never thought I would do, but the feedback that came from working with these adults I said, look, if you've ever write a book, please let me know I'd write it. And, you know, I've, I've actually wrote the book now and I've spoke to a lot of different people. It comes out next year and there's, you know, 20, 88, 88 pre-orders. There's 88 people that have messaged me wanting to buy the book and I've not even priced it yet. So there's a lot um, of positives I've realised from negatives. Um, and so me telling my story is not something I'm ashamed of anymore. Um, I, I don't tend to get upset or emotional anymore, but I think you know sometimes, man, it's unpredictable. I didn't, I didn't think I'd, I'd, I'd um, I didn't think that would hit a card, that that last, that last, that last bit we, we we just spoke about in terms of my my role model. But again, you don't know these things until you experience them, until you do them. And, and this is my first podcast, so you know, speaking about it, it, never gets it, never gets old, it never gets boring. It only gets more empowering. Um, and and that's what I emphasise today to to speak about things when you're thinking about them to speak to speak to people who can motivate you and, and my motivating factor is the reason I've wanted to change my life and it's it, I don't think I don't think it would have happened I don't think it would have been locked in my mind if I have not gone through interrogation because you put in a place you would never be put on in normal life people say to me all the time like you know when you go to the gym you stop when you're tired and you go home you know, when you go to work, when you're tired, you come home, like, over there, there was no, there was nothing, to, I couldn't do that, I was in a situation where I was just mind, body, soul, um, and I didn't want to stop, I wanted to see how far I could go, and I wanted to push myself to breaking point, and I did that, um, and any longer, it could have affected my mental health, like he has, has done with, you know, I won't mention his name, but one of the other recruiters on SAS, who needed severe counselling for six months, so, you know, it just gives you an idea of how deep and how hard interrogation was. But for me, for me, it unlocked a, it unlocked something in my mindset that's made me want to come back and help people on a wider, greater scale.
1: Yeah, and that's so incredibly powerful. And the fact the fact you're writing a book to do that is. Is, um, is great news for, for everyone and there'll be, rather than 88, I think there'll be 90 pre-orders after this one, Alan. <laughs> um, we'll, 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 be, be, we'll, we'll be getting one in there each. Um, on the subject of books, we, we're going to start to wind down now a little bit, Sean, and we, we like to ask our guests no just a, a few little sort of quick fire questions to finish. Um, on the subject no of books, what, what what books do you recommend that help to shape who you are? You've told us about your life experiences and the real life aspects. What, what do you read that helps shape your mindset and and what you do on a day-to-day basis?
2: Yeah, so um, the, I've only just started reading uh, books in the last couple, I'd say the last two years, especially mm-hmm. since lockdown. I, I downloaded Audible, the Audible app, and I listened to so yeah. many on, on Audible app, and um, what, one thing I seemed to draw towards was um, Denzel Washington. I listened to a lot of Denzel Washington's motivational talks, and, and I just find a lot of things he say, Triggers hit little triggers in my own life story, um so I'm sure mo- mo- most people relate, but I listened to a lot of denzel Washington motiva- motivational speech, as well as the middleton books, the first man in um something about that book triggered triggered something in my mindset, and I related a lot to what he said in that book. but one um book in particular that I read was um Tyson Fury's autobiography, which I found. You know I've, I've grown up in a family with with drink drugs you know criminality all around me um and Tyson Fury's autobiography was was a real eye opener and I found that um relatable in a lot of ways so you know I read books of, of real life I don't really read fiction I read I read people's real stories um and mindset challenges and mindset change and you know, rather than the life, the life coaching books and the manuals I read, I, I try to read as many autobiographies as the kind of people who've managed to change their lives around. And you know, if if, if anyone that's well, listening has not read Tides from Fury's book or at Middleton's First Man In, um or Jason Fox's Battle Scars, these are the books I, I kind of read. Um, but the first one I read was uh, from a gentleman called Chris Ryan. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Chris Ryan, and he was a um, SAS oper- operative that was caught behind enemy lines. He was sent on a a nine-man mission um, to to gain intelligence behind enemy lines. And anyway, all went wrong, um, and the other eight died. But he, Chris Ryan, fought for three days, with no food or water, just himself, his ammunition and his rifle, um, getting chased off Taliban leaders. And he fought off, I think it was an approximate of 22, 22 gunfights and managed to survive. Now the last day, the day of his capture, he was hiding in um, like a circular container, and he said he, his life flashed before him, and his little girl flashed before him, and he knew he was never going to see her again, and he could smell his own body rotting because of the gun, the gun, the gun wounds. And but the perseverance to be not only alone behind enemy lines, but to get yourself across Afghanistan and into Syria um, must have took some doing, uh, and survive it, and survive two gunfights. Um, just through sheer perseverance of his daughter wanting to see his daughter again, you know, really opened my eyes to think, you know what, there's people out there that have got worse stories than me, have been through a lot more than me, but we all share share the same common goal and it's to succeed in life and make Very it cool. to, the, to the end. So, you know, these books kind of all started to shape my, 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 my decisions that I'm making. Um, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm not I'm not not perfect, you know, I'm the only human. But I find reading really helps, you know, nullify and rectify where other people have gone wrong and, and understand a little bit more about yourself. Because I think in, in every book, you, you can find something that relates to your own story. So, yeah, they're the books I've, I've kind of read.
0: And the last one, Sean, our favourite one this three leaders, dead or alive, that you'd love to go out for a meal with and have a good chat with.
2: Luddy you put me on the. On the spot now. <laughs> um, I mean, look what what defines a leader, you know. Rather than you know, i don't relate to sports people, but I'm just I can only relate to people who, who influence my life. Um, yeah, that's good. yeah, uh, and one of them would be Frank Sinatra. Um, and I say Frank Sinatra, it's because you know he's had an impact on my life from the age of nine. The music. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm a football manager, my 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 motivator and my role model. You know, he, he was his idol, Frank Sinatra. So, you know, I'd have to put Frank Sinatra in there. Um, Denzel Washington, I'm gonna have to say, is a second one because you know, with his own life experiences, um, Denzel Washington actually, you know, failed. I think he failed twenty odd times before he got his first break for his first film. Um. He did a he did a, he did a ballet. He did something to do with ballet, He did dance dance and singing okay. thing in his first audition um in New York. And he actually got turned down for that and told he'd never make it. He returned 20 years later to that same to that same New York theatre and, 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 and did a motivational talk. So, you know, Denzel Washington would, would be would be my second. Um and my third. Um I have to just mention Damien the, the man that passed away. Um, you know, he was for me, the most natural-born leader I've, I've, I've ever come across is someone I've, I've, I've taken so much from, and he's the he's the reason that that I think I got into teaching. I think I got into wanting to help young 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 people, not young boys, but young people, um, because of how much he impacted my life. I didn't know one adult, one person, could have that much impact on a young person's life. I was I was obsessed with everything he told me, and I absorbed and. Um, digested everything he told me and it's something I still use to this day we're talking I met him in 1998 1999 you know we're 2021 20, now and some of the stuff he tells me is still still relevant to to the way I live with my life today so you know they're they're the three people that I see as natural leaders and um three people I look up to today
1: Sean the, the time's flown by um and yeah yeah I've- you know, we, we could go on for another couple of hours. We've not even started to, to look at perseverance and the links with teaching and, and how that's really impacted your career. But the insight you've given us has been absolutely fascinating. Um and no, I appreciate just, it, just unbelievable thank to you. listen to. Us. So thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it.
2: No problem at all. No problem at all.
0: I think there's a definite part two in there on links to back to your teaching career, Sean, without a doubt. Transfer yeah. ours at the moment. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because that, that, again, is another another story for for you boys, how I got yeah. into that, you know, as I say, I've talked about fate before, but, you know, I actually nearly packed that in at first because I couldn't afford to, to train myself, I had to do it the long way around because I failed university, I didn't sit it, you know, just in brief, I ended up having to start at the bottom and become a teaching assistant on £606 a month, so you boys will know that you can't live off £606 a month, so... <laughs> I had, to, I had to find other ways to live. So again, we'll uh, we'll get a part two, and then I can elaborate on that because it's a good story.
1: We'd love that, Sean. Listen, between now and then, where can our uh, viewers and listeners find out a little bit more about you and the work that you're doing now?
2: Yeah. So if you follow my social media pages, um, it's t- on Twitter. It's, it's Sean underscore Shearwood, but mainly my Facebook page, which is Sean Anthony Health and Wellness, and my Instagram page, which is um, S A Health and Wellness um you will find a lot of updates coming up especially in december so in december i'm actually taking a month off school taking a month off work i'm actually going on on a a mini tour um with my health and wellness brand i'm doing a tour of 10 schools colleges and small businesses and i'm doing some motivational talks um and i'm going to document the full thing i've got a videographer that's working with me that's going to film film some parts of the talks but yeah, just look out for that. I'm going to post the dates starting from, the, I think, the first talks on December the 3rd. And that's in a, in a PRU, which is a people referral unit um, full of students who have been permanently excluded from school uh, to kind of give them some hope and direction on where to go next. And then I'm actually doing full assemblies to, to year groups on from that and then speaking to, 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 to groups of, of college students. So there's a lot going on with Sean Anton Health and Wellness in December. Um, so just look out for that and look out for the the artwork which is coming out himself. and if you boys don't mind giving it a retweet when I post it on Twitter I'd, I'd appreciate it I'm sure,
1: no manage, I'm sure we can manage that and, and good luck with the book we'll speak to you uh, in the new calendar year Sean and, and you can give us an update on how everything's going for now thanks so much for your time really appreciate it thanks gents appreciate it take care You for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners Podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for school and worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.